It's good to be together again this evening. Those who are visiting with us tonight, we want to thank you for being here and hope that you uh, feel welcome. It is a delight for us to be able to to have you here worshiping with us this evening, and we hope that you'll give us an opportunity to be able to visit with you and talk with you a little bit and get to know you, and maybe there's some way in which we can help you, serve you in some way, and we would, we would love to do that as well. Now, I don't know, maybe you noticed, but the real estate market in Austin is doing okay these days. Has anybody, has anybody caught on to that? There are a lot of people not only in the Austin area, but throughout the state and throughout the country that are paying a lot of attention to things, all things pertaining to real estate, property value, tax rates, and things of that nature. And the reason is because there are a lot of folks who are finding that, you know, the home that they bought for X amount uh, 20 years ago can be sold for 10 times that amount maybe today, And then on the other hand, there are those who are thinking that they used to be able to buy quite a bit for X amount, and now that same amount won't buy near as much. Regardless of what end of the spectrum a person happens to be on, the thing about property value is that property value rises and falls all the time depending upon a number of different factors. In fact, the same thing can be said about just about everything in this world. Most things in this world have a value of some kind. Whatever the good, whatever the material thing might be, it, it, they all have some monetary number that can, be, that can be put on them. But that number can change and does change all the time depending upon various circumstances and factors that affect it. But then there are things that are different. There are some things that we have access to in this world that transcend these material items that have a value, yes, that changes. We're talking about things that are of a spiritual nature and things that regardless of the time and the place and whatever the economic situation happens to be, these things always have a very, very high value. And these are the things that I want us to talk about this evening. For the purpose of our lesson, we've just titled the lesson, Things of Genuine Value. And the idea tonight for us is to take a few minutes to look into Scripture and see what Scripture has to say about the importance of us placing our focus on things that, that really matter, things that have genuine value and things that have lasting value in our lives here in this world and that will carry us on into eternity. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 29 as we begin. Genesis chapter 29, and I want us to begin by simply noticing the fact that we must learn to highly regard things that are of genuine value. You may remember the occasion of Genesis chapter 29. This is the occasion of Jacob. And you'll remember in Genesis chapter 28 that Isaac, Jacob's father, called him and blessed him and charged him and said, you're not going to take a wife of the daughters of the Canaanites. So he sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife of the daughters of Laban, his mother's brother. So finally, in Genesis chapter 29, he arrives to his destination, and you'll remember that he meets 
uh, he meets uh, uh, Rachel. And Rachel, of course, was beautiful, and he loved her. And as he spoke to Laban, he worked out an arrangement, and the arrangement was that he would serve him seven years to be able to marry Rachel. When his seven years uh, was finished, he married, but come to find out, Laban had played a trick on him, had deceived him, and he gave him Leah instead. So when Jacob confronted Laban because of his deceit, of course, he uh, called him to the carpet for that deceit, but he agreed to work another seven years. And so 14 years altogether, Jacob worked for the ability to be able to have Rachel as his wife. And you and I look at this occasion and we sort of scratch our head. There's a lot to be said about the content of this chapter, but I want to just make this point for our purposes this evening. Why is it that Jacob worked 14 years for Rachel? Why is it that after the first seven, he didn't throw in the towel? Why is it, as the Bible says, that these years, as long as they seemed to us, really went by in just a short time for him? The reason is because he loved her. The reason is because he highly valued her. And to her, she had great, genuine value to him. And so it didn't bother him at all to work for 14 years in order to be able to marry her and have her as his wife. Jacob, at least to whatever degree, to some degree, understood the principle of highly regarding things that are of genuine value. Now, turn backward just a few chapters to Genesis chapter 25, and you're going to see something that is totally the opposite. In Genesis chapter 25, we have the occasion of Jacob and Esau, and Esau selling his birthright to Jacob. Genesis chapter 29, uh, 25, verses 29 and following. The Bible says that Jacob uh, made a stew, made a, a, a pottage, that Esau came from the field and that he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray you, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me this day your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, swear to me this day. And he swore by him and sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up. And he went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. In this world in which Jacob and Esau were living, the blessing of the birthright, the blessing of the firstborn was not something to be taken lightly. Whenever the father would pass away, then the firstborn would receive a double inheritance, a double portion, and then it would fall to him to be the patriarch of the family, the right to rule over the family. And so as Jacob and Esau have this interaction, Esau is looking at this birthright and the Bible says that he despised that birthright, that he thought little of it is the idea. And the question then is why? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible speaks of Moses in verse number 24 and following and tells us one very important thing about him, that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for season. And that point at the end of that passage, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, is very important because the pleasures of sin are only for a season. They only last for a short time. 
You see, what the devil wants is for you and I to be like Esau. He wants us to be short-sighted. He wants us to be able to see the good things, quote-unquote, the pleasurable things that are here right in front of our face, and he wants us to be able to look at them and not be able to look past them, not be able to look beyond them. He wants us to see the pleasure today, not the pain of tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened with Esau. He was faint and he was hungry, but he exaggerated. He wasn't near to death at all. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 and 17 gives divine commentary on Esau. And here's what it says. Esau is described as a fornicator or a pro- he's a profane person who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, and then he says in verse 17 that he came to regret it. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. In other words, it wasn't very long before Esau realized that he had made a big mistake. It wasn't very long before Esau realized that he had this birthright, which was something that really was of value. And because he was short-sighted, because he wasn't looking on into the future, he chose to despise something that had real value for something that had some value. He got to fill his stomach, but it wasn't of any lasting value. It wasn't of any real, genuine value. Esau was very, very different, very different than Jacob in this way. As we think about things of genuine value and learning to uh, highly regard those things that are of genuine value, we have to recognize that our world is full of things and unfortunately full of people that value the wrong things too highly. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 14, as Jesus gives the parable of the sower. One of the parts of that parable is the seed that is cast into the, the, the thorny soil, the thorny ground. And what Jesus says about that is that it represents those who receive the word for a short time and then after a while the seed is choked out by the cares and the worries of this world and also, he says, by the riches of this world, by the things of this world. In other words, they value the wrong things. They hear the gospel, they hear the truth, they see its value for a little while, but ultimately it's the value that they perceive to be in the things, the material things of this world that catches their attention and keeps it. First John chapter 2 and verse 16 John described the things that exist in this world as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And if we stop and think carefully just for a moment about our daily interactions, our daily exposure to media through television or social media, as we look around the world in which we live, certainly we can see evidences of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life on display regularly and all around us. There are all kinds of things in this world that people value far, far too highly. Take Solomon, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse number 1. Listen to what the Bible tells us about Solomon. The Bible says, But King Solomon loved many strange women 
together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites and Amazites and Edomites and Zidonians and Hittites of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon did cleave unto these in love, and he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. What's going on in 1 Kings chapter 11? The problem in 1 Kings chapter 11 is that Solomon, who had been blessed by God with, great, with a great abundance of wisdom, Solomon, who had been blessed by God with all of the power and prestige and wealth, all of the material things that anyone could ever imagine, Solomon allowed himself to be governed not by his devotion to God, but rather by the lust of the flesh. He, was allowed, he allowed himself to be governed by the lust of the flesh. He violated the will of God in having so many foreign wives, so many foreign women, and they eventually turned his heart away from God. Let me ask you a question. Are there people in this world who allow the totality of their lives to be directed by their lusts? Are there people in this world who allow their lives to be directed by their desires, whatever those desires may be? The answer, of course, is yes. There are a lot of people just like Solomon who value the wrong things. Look at Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. It's another familiar passage, but one that I want us to visit quickly. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote about the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 21. He says, Because that uh, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now what we're reading in these three verses is the evolution or the de-evolution, I guess you could say, the downward spiral of the, the Gentiles as he's describing them in this chapter. But there's one part of this that I want us to focus our attention on and it's at the beginning of verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. I want you to think about that just for a moment. What is it to glorify? What is it to give glory? The idea is basically to speak well of or to exalt or to uplift. When we glorify God, we are speaking well of him, we are exalting him, and we are honoring him, giving him the credit, if you will, for the, thing, the good things that he's given us, for all of the wonderful attributes that make up his character That's the idea. Now, the Bible says that they did not glorify God. Let me ask you a question. If they weren't glorifying God, then who were they glorifying? Have you ever considered that? We're all going to glorify someone or something. It's either going to be God or what? The little g, God. Idolatry. And that can take just about any form. Covetousness is idolatry. According to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, It could be that they glorify their lusts. It could be that they glorify themselves and their pride and their own human accomplishments. It could be that they glorify fill in the blank. 
They were not glorifying God. We know that much is true, but they had to have been glorifying something. And that same principle, I would suggest to you, applies to every human being, and it will until this world comes to an end. We're either glorifying God or we're glorifying someone or something else. And if we're not glorifying God, then we're not glorifying something that really is of any real, genuine value. So when we think about Jacob and we think about Esau and Solomon and the Gentiles and there are other examples in scripture, what do all of these examples seek to impress upon us? Again, the importance of finding those things that have real value, real worth and clinging to them, not to the things in this world that are passing and are really worthless when we look at the big picture. Now for the remainder of our study, I want to just give you a list of some things that God's word identifies as things of real, genuine value. Some things that we ought to think about, some things that we ought to consider and meditate upon as we think about what scripture has to say about them. And if I were making a list of priorities in my life, these are the things that I would put on them. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, just a few things that uh, came to mind that I put down for us to consider this evening. First of all, in a general way, spiritual wealth, that is something that we ought to pursue because spiritual wealth is something that is of of real lasting value. I direct your attention to Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 and I want you to notice with me what these verses have to say to those who are New Testament Christians. Listen to what Colossians 3 verse 1 through 4 says. It says, if you then be risen with Christ, that's talking about Christians. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Notice in verse number two that the apostle Paul uses the word affection. What are we talking about when we're talking about, what is affection? What is that? It has to do with our desire. It has to do with our love. It has to do with the things that we appreciate and the things that we admire the most. And the Apostle Paul says, if you're a Christian, then your affection and those things that have the most value to you, they ought not to be found here in this world. They ought to be found in heaven. Jesus said the same thing, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and following? Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth, he says, where moth and rust can corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust can corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, and no man can serve two masters. You'll either serve God or you'll serve mammon, which is another word for materialism or the things in this world. So I asked you this morning this same question, but it's important enough, I think, to ask again, and that is, what do you value the most in this world? What is the thing that is most important to you? And I would suggest to you this evening that if you answer that question, if you fill in that blank with anything that is of a material nature or of a perishing nature, then you ought to reevaluate your priorities. Because the Bible teaches us that those things that are of real, genuine value are things that are heavenly, 
not things that are earthly. Here's a second thing to add to your list. We'll call it Christian character. As you go through the New Testament and you uh, study carefully, you will notice that there are several passages of Scripture that identify things that would qualify as being the characteristics of a Christian. We could talk about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could talk about the spiritual characteristics that the Apostle Peter mentions in 2 Peter chapter 1 and uh, add to your faith knowledge and to knowledge virtue and so on and so forth. But I want you to look with me at two passages that we don't study all that often. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 and then 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number 11. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, listen to what Paul says. He says, for bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Having a promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Bodily exercise, he says, profits a little. Notice he is not stripping it of all of its value. He says there is some Profit, there is some value in bodily exercise, in taking care of yourself, but where's the real value? The real value is in godliness. The real value is in piety or seeking to honor and to be like God in every way that we can. And he says that it is profitable unto all things. Why? Because it has a promise of life that now is and that which is to come. In other words, we can take care of our physical body, but try as we might, eventually our physical bodies are going to wear down. They're going to break and they're going to die. What really ought to concern us is godliness, Christ-likeness. How about 1 Timothy chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse number, uh, verse number 11? The Apostle Paul is making a contrast in this passage. Let's actually uh, skip back to verse number 8. Verse number 7, excuse me. He says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And so having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But now look at verse number 11. But you, O man of God, notice there's a contrast. We have those, verse number 9 and verse number 10, he says, those that will be rich. Now notice that he is not condemning being rich all on its own. He is condemning this mindset that says, I will pursue riches at the expense of everything else. That's the implication that will be. Look at the term will be and circle that. That's the idea. Those whose entire being is devoted to the pursuit of material gain, he says they're going to drown. They're going to, they're going to uh, find destruction and perdition. They're going to be destroyed. But here's what you do, verse number 11. You follow after righteousness. That's the idea of right living. You follow after godliness. That's the idea, as we saw in our previous passage of piety or godlikeness. You follow after faith and love 
and patience and meekness. And you fight the good fight of faith, verse 12, and lay hold on eternal life whereunto you are also called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. Now, unless the Lord returns first, there's going to come a day in which someone is going to stand up and talk about us at our funeral. And I don't know about you, it's a little morbid, I guess, but I think it's a good exercise for us to think about these things sometimes. Sometimes I stop and I think, what might someone say about me when that day comes for me? Or more to the point, what might, what might my children say about me? What might they think about me? What sort of legacy am I going to leave behind for them? There are a lot of people who, when their life is over, the best that anyone's ever going to be able to say about them is, you know, they were very successful in business and they, they did a lot of good things. They made a lot of money and they really helped grow this corporation or they fill in the blank. But what about, what about a Christian? I would hope that, that the desire of every one of us is that when our time in this life is over and someone stands up and preaches our funeral, that they would be able to emphasize the kind of godly characteristics that are mentioned in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11 and 12, and not the kind of things that are mentioned in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. These Christian characteristics that are identified in the New Testament, these are the things that we ought to seek. These are the kinds of things that really make a difference in the life of the person who pursues them and in the lives of people that that person uh, interacts with. These are things of genuine value. Here's the third, and I know our time is, is uh, slipping away, so we'll go a little quicker. A third thing that we ought to really value and that we ought to really pursue is a godly marriage. In Proverbs chapter 31 and verse number 10, as the Proverbs writer talks about the virtuous woman, here's what he says. He asks this question. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is what? Her price is far above rubies. What does that mean? That means that there is no price tag that could ever be put on her. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse number 4, Solomon said, A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, that she, but she that makes ashamed is rottenness in his bones. And later on, again speaking about marriage in Proverbs chapter uh, number 18 and verse number 22, he made this statement. He said, Whoso finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains the favor of the Lord. You remember that when God created Eve, the reason he created her is because there was, there was no help, there was no companion found for the man Adam. And so he fashioned Eve from his rib in order to make a, help, a helper that was fitting or appropriate for him. When two people come together in the covenant relationship of marriage and they seek to honor God together as a couple, magnify the Lord together, Psalm 30, as the sentiments of Psalm 34 uh, will, will portray, then those two individuals, that man and that woman, are going to enter into a life of blessing and happiness that someone who is outside of Christ simply cannot begin to comprehend and understand. We ought to value and we ought to really prize a godly, faithful marriage. And those who are already married ought to see uh, that they uh, uh, make their marriage one that glorifies God. 
Those who are not yet married but seeking to be married at some time in the future ought to put this at the top of the list. A marriage that will be good and pleasant and and, uh, enjoyable is a marriage that is going to glorify God. Here's another. Another thing of genuine value is a good friendship. In Proverbs chapter 18 and verse number 24, the Proverbs writer says, A man that has friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In the previous chapter, Proverbs 17, 17, he said a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We come into contact, we interact with a lot of different people in our life, a lot of people in this world, friends that we make along the way, but we all understand that there is a big difference between someone who is a friend and then there's that one, maybe two or three individuals that we would describe as being our closest friends. People that we trust, people that we can confide in, people that have been there for us and we've been there for them and we know no matter what happens in this life, that friend is going to be there for us to lean on. That friend will be there to rebuke us and to challenge us when we need to be. And that friend will be there to comfort us when we need to be comforted. And the Bible says that there is a great, there is a great price that is put upon a good friendship. And it's something that we should all value. Here's another. We should learn to value true wisdom. In James chapter 3, <clears throat> You remember that James contrasts the wisdom that is from above with the wisdom that is from below. And James describes the end result of both of those kinds of wisdoms. He tells us that the wisdom from below, the earthly kind of wisdom, that it is devilish and that it is sensual and that it, that it results in destruction. But then there's the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that God gives. And the Bible describes having that kind of wisdom as a blessing. Well, where does that wisdom come from? Would you listen to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 to 15? The, Psalm, the Proverbs writer says, Happy is the man that finds wisdom and the man that gets understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver and the gain thereof than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things that thou canst desire are not to be compared unto her. Just one chapter earlier in Proverbs chapter 2, Solomon said, If you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you so that you incline your ear unto wisdom and apply your heart to understanding... Yes, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you shall understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. There can be no greater blessing in this world than to fill our hearts and our minds with the wisdom that is found in the pages of God's word. And if we will hope to navigate this life successfully and with the least amount of sorrows possible, it will come by finding and by embracing true wisdom. Here's the last one, and then the lesson is yours. And that, of course, is salvation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 26 that one soul is worth more than everything in this world. In fact, it's worth more than the whole world. That means that you, that your soul is worth more than this in, the entirety of this world. 
And if one should gain the whole world and that soul be lost, according to Matthew 16, 26, our Savior said they have profited nothing. So as we think about things of genuine value and learning to really pursue and embrace and long for things that last, certainly this has to be first priority. So I leave you with this question this evening. Is salvation a reality for you? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you, uh, do, have you come to faith in Christ Jesus? Have you confessed that faith? Have you repented of your sins and been immersed in water so that your sins can be forgiven? If not, why not? What are you waiting for? Is there something in this world, something in this life that you value so much that you're willing to uh, sacrifice eternity for it? Certainly there's nothing in this world that's worth it. Not one single thing. So God's word pleads with us. It, it exhorts us to, to seek those things that really matter. And what really matters is, is my heart right with God? Tonight, if it's not, then we offer the Lord's invitation. And we uh, do this as an opportunity for us to be able to uh, obey the gospel. To be able, if we've already obeyed the gospel, to come before the congregation to confess faults or perhaps just to confess struggles so that the congregation, so that the church, our family, and Christ Jesus, so that we can encourage one another and build one another up, so that we can pray for one another. It is a privilege to be able to help a brother or a sister in Christ in whatever way that we can to be the person that God would have them to be. So tonight, if you have a need that we can help you with, we invite you to come and let it be known while we stand and sing together.